0: George Washington's tomb. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Matt Costello. Thank you for uh, joining us, Matt. Great to be here, Bob. Matt Costello, Matthew Costello, is vice president of the David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History and senior historian of the White House Historical Association. I wasn't going to do this, but... What are those organizations?
1: So the White House Historical Association is a private nonprofit organization tasked with uh, not only an education mission, uh, so uh, historical research, uh, teacher training. Uh, We have a digital library that has access to thousands of images of the White House and people who lived and worked there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we also help raise money to acquire historic artifacts and objects Uh, to return to the White House, and we also assist with preservation and conservation
0: projects at the White House. And Matt Costello is author of the book, The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. The book is published by the University Press of Kansas. Matt Costello recently did a talk uh, based on his new uh, book here in upstate New York at Fulton Montgomery Community College in Johnstown, a talk organized by the folks at the Fort Plain Museum. When George Washington died in late 1799, he was buried at his family's plantation, Mount Vernon, in Virginia. Was his death at that time expected?
1: Well, I mean, at that point in time, Washington was 67 years old. Um, And I think people who had seen him uh, in the last years after he retired, after he left the presidency, I mean, certainly he would have looked all of 67 um, and uh you know serving the country for 8 years during the war uh returning for the constitutional convention 8 years of the presidency um, you know they had really taken their toll on washington and uh but i think also you know it was it one of those things where there had been so many legends and stories built up around him you know he had he had had a uh, horse's shot out from underneath him he had bullets go through his coat Uh, Almost like he was going to live forever. And uh, so I think many Americans were pretty shocked uh, when they heard that George Washington had passed
0: away. Hmm. And his wife Martha lived until 1802. But after her husband died, she was beset by, wasn't she, by many people who literally and figuratively uh, wanted a piece of George Washington after he died. How did she handle these requests?
1: Well, for the most part, Martha would only reply to letters that were, I think, close friends, family members, because she did get a lot of, of letters from political leaders, uh, people who knew her husband, but then also strangers who were asking for all sorts of things. Uh, there was a group of sisters from Rhode Island who asked for a lock of Washington's hair. Uh, there was another gentleman who asked her to write a pardon uh, to the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, Thomas McKee, for a pardon on his behalf because, according to him, he had been mistakenly uh, accused of horse-stealing. Uh, there's another gentleman who wants to do a full-length portrait of Washington, but he wants to request one of Washington's suits uh, so that his model can, can wear it for uh, the painting. So I think with those types of requests, Martha either directly didn't respond or she passed him along to Tobias Lear who was Washington's private secretary. He was handling a lot of the correspondence.
0: Mm-hmm. There was this very uh, touching letter from Abigail Adams who to some extent had been there and done that. I mean, she too had been the second first lady and uh, uh, well anyway, and Martha responded to her.
1: Yeah, and you know Martha didn't reply to many letters and uh and as everybody probably knows, you know she also burned uh, her and her husband's correspondence. I think there's only three letters that have survived today uh, between George and Martha. So uh, she was a very private person, and uh, and if she wrote a response to you, I mean, I, I think that that also suggests that she truly valued her friendship with that person. And I think Abigail Adams, there was a shared kinship, uh, you know, both being first ladies of the United States.
0: After he died, Washington, I believe you write this, became a commodity. Can you talk about that?
1: One of the the overarching points that I make in the book is that you know Washington, for the most part, really had command of his legacy and his reputation while he was alive. It was something that he guarded very carefully, and uh, he gave a lot of thought about things that he did, how they would be perceived, uh, because he knew that you know his examples were going to live on beyond his time, and when he's gone, there are all these different efforts then uh, to transform the memory, capitalize on the memory, and profit from the memory. And when I say that Washington became a commodity, you know, you think of anything with Washington's face on it. Um, you know, flasks, snuff boxes, walking mm-hmm. sticks, uh, things that were directly taken from Mount Vernon. Uh, there becomes this whole market of, of people who want Washington uh, regalia and memorabilia. And, uh, and there's businessmen... There's uh, enslaved storytellers, even Washington's own family members, sort of step into that void and start offering people the opportunity to purchase a piece of Washington's
0: world. Mm. And you write that uh, George Washington was an affluent slave owner who believed that republicanism, a representative form of government, was the way to go, not just real democracy. And he also a great believer in social hierarchy and, and rules uh, that were vital to the country's uh, survival. That's not, I mean, but somehow that was what Washington was, but th- the idea of what he was has changed over the years?
1: From Washington's perspective, uh, and, and he and many of the other founders believed this, that when the country was founded as a republic, that, um, you know, select citizens should really be charged with governing for all. Uh, so not really like a democracy as we know it today, uh, more like a republic where really uh, the best and the brightest citizens are the ones who are tasked more with those types of responsibilities. And I think with Washington, you know, he had seen experiences with state constitutions that experimented with democracy and things had gotten out of hand, uh, you know, places like Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, uh, but also even abroad with the French Revolution, uh, and seeing how democracy can quickly spiral out of control and, uh, and can lead to chaos violence, bloodshed, war, and, uh, you know, Washington was very vigilant against these, these forces, these things that could threaten the country that he helped create, and uh, an outright democracy was one of those threats. But as the country democratized in the 19th century, as more and more people were brought into the political fold and they had more say over their representatives, their government, um, you know, they also had more say in their history. Uh, and what it meant to them, and Washington becomes this figure, this this father of democracy, which I think he probably w- would have been slightly uncomfortable with that title. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Jefferson probably would have preferred the title, but in the 19th century, Americans are, are looking to the symbol uh, of, of you know the citizen to emulate, and Washington transforms into this this man of democracy.
0: Mm-hmm. and transforms in part because people visit his tomb at, at Mount Vernon. How long did it take for tourists to show up there?
1: Uh pretty much immediately. Yeah, there were I mean there were also uh people that showed up to the funeral that probably weren't really invited uh because the funeral was larger than they anticipated. Um but you know, as soon as he retired even from the presidency, um you know, him and Martha were constantly entertaining people who wanted to see General Washington. And because of that personality, because of his commitment to public service, and because of the code of, you know, Virginia hospitality, he felt like he needed, you know, to entertain people, to put them up, to feed them. Um, But after he's gone, you know, people continue doing that, and they think that the Washington family will just keep doing that. And, uh, And Martha does it for some time. But then, when the estate passes to George's nephew Bushrod Washington, uh, then the family takes a much different approach. You know, it's really only select people can go into the into the house. So the primary attraction on the grounds for anybody that visits Mount Vernon becomes the tomb.
0: Hmm. And it's remarkable to me, or I guess I never really have thought much about it, that he's buried there. I mean, I realize that's his plantations where he wanted to be buried and so forth, but. Wouldn't you think, like Napoleon being buried in Paris or, um, you know, Lenin being embalmed in, in Moscow, that something like that would have happened to George Washington's body?
1: Well, and I think that's, that's a great thing, like a, you know, kind of like a what-if um, and what could have happened in the United States because, you know, we were very much on that path, and that was what Federalists wanted. Uh, they wanted Washington to be buried in almost like a grandiose pyramidal mausoleum type structure. And the country was so young and so early in its infancy, you know, we still hadn't really had that conversation about, well, how will Americans revere their heroes? Um, is it going to be through public celebrations? Is it going to be through trying to live by their example? Is it going to be through education? Um, now, the, when the Federalists look to the European models, places like France and England, it was about these these national sites of repose mm-hmm. so you know Westminster Abbey uh the national pantheon in France i mean this is where the heroes of these countries are buried and uh you know would the united states have something similar uh we had congressional cemetery but i mean that really wasn't that wasn't a whole lot um and then really you know we don't have arlington national cemetery until the civil war uh and even then it's it's you know it's primarily service members um, and people who've served the government, the armed forces. Um, so you know we didn't go down that path of worshiping the body of a person, uh, like many of our other European
0: counterparts did. Mm. But con- you mentioned that the Federalists wanted to um, have maybe Washington buried in Washington D.C. So the opponents were Thomas Jefferson and his Democratic Republicans.
1: Yeah, for the most part, um, the the original proposal. Um, so. About uh, 10 days after Washington had died, uh, Congress had actually sent some resolutions to Martha requesting that in the future they would like to move George Washington's body to the unfinished Capitol. And the idea was to put him in a chamber uh, beneath the present-day crypt in the rotunda, and that they would also provide a statue above it. Uh, And it was actually supposed to be an open-air uh, space. There would have been a hole in the rotunda where you could look down, and you would see the statue. And then his his tomb would have actually been below that. And uh, this was the resolution that Congress proposed and sent. Uh, but then later, uh, when it, it seems to hit a snag, and because you know there's some issues with, well, when is the rotunda going to be built? I mean, at that point, I think they only had one chamber done uh, in anticipation of Congress moving to Washington D.C. Uh, there's an idea to actually build a mausoleum uh, near the Capitol. Uh, in fact, Benjamin Henry Latrobe at least designs one, sketches one up. And uh, and the, the outcry becomes, you know, is, is this what Washington would have wanted? What did we fight a revolution for? What were the ideals we were fighting for? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, the Jeffersonian Republicans make the argument that, you know, we should be commemorating the many people's, who fought for freedom and revolution, not just a single man. Mm -hmm. And it's a powerful argument. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course other people, you know, they can't agree about funding and who will design it. Uh, but I think using that, that, that argument of the rhetoric of the revolution and then saying that like, you know, Washington would never want something like this. These are just political people hijacking his, his legacy for themselves. Um, you know, that's really a turning point because then the Federalists lose power in Congress and then it becomes a moot point.
0: Matt Costello joins us. He's author of The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. We'll continue with him in just a moment. Want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign, which uh, keeps the Historians podcast on the internet. Uh, We now have over 300 episodes. We've been doing this for six years, uh, once-a-week uh, historical conversation on the Historians Podcast, and we welcome your contributions. Go to our homepage, bobcudmore.com, and you'll see a link to click to our GoFundMe page, and you can then donate online. Or you can send me a check, uh, write out the check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, One, two, three, zero, two. Matt Costello joins us talking about his book, The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. Um, In in the 1800s, I mean, after Martha dies, and by the way, Martha uh, Washington's also buried uh, next to George Washington, isn't she? Yes, she is. And the, the people start visiting... Uh, Washington's tomb at Mount Vernon. Uh, it uh, becomes a kind of a commercial uh, enterprise, and I guess well, it's so many things you could t- tell us about that. Let me uh, jump to the um, enslaved people. It, it turns out that uh, enslaved people are the ones who lead the tours, if I understand correctly, or give little talks a- at the Washington's tomb. Is that is that true? And what effect does uh, that have on uh Washington's reputation.
1: Sure. So um the the Washington family, the people who live there for the most part try to avoid interacting with strangers or trespassers. Uh, in fact, you know, starting with Bushrod Washington, um, he really wanted people to have letters of introduction, uh, or to be people that the family actually knew so that they could come into the mansion. And uh, they really tried not to go outside and interact with people because they were besieged by visitors. And, uh, so then my question was, well, then who are, you know, who are these people talking to? Um, I keep finding all these visitor accounts of people visiting Mount Vernon. So who are they talking to? And time and time again, I'm finding references to them speaking to uh, an aged enslaved person or a colored servant or an old Negro. I mean, these are the the language that's used in the sources. Um, but you know they're they're in, interacting with the people who are actually outside on the grounds working, um, or or maybe are in the garden working, um, or down by the tomb or down by the wharf. Uh, so these were the people that were actually interacting with these white visitors in the 19th century, and uh, you know based on those interactions and those are those accounts, uh, you get a wide variety of different uh, different takes on it. You know some you can tell uh, are really good at storytelling and they sort of weave themselves into the story, uh, even though it's probably likely that they weren't even at Mount Vernon when George Washington lived there. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's other ones that are selling things, you know, they're selling bouquets of flowers, they're selling fruit from the garden, they're selling carved Washington canes. Uh, There's other ones who uh, are, are basically kind of like doorkeepers at the Porter's lodges on the West side of the property, uh, and people give them gratuities for letting them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, probably the story that I think is most significant and that really a lot of people don't talk about in the 19th century is Washington's uh, emancipation of the enslaved people that he owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that comes up um, by these enslaved storytellers where they talk about, um, sometimes they use it sort of a, as a as a backhanded slap towards uh you know, Bushrod Washington or John Augustine Washington, where somebody asked them, oh, well, were you a servant of George Washington? And they say, no, if I was, I'd be free. Uh, so so they were able to sort of turn the story on itself and and critique, uh, you know, Bushrod Washington and the Washington relatives for continuing uh, to practice slavery at Mount Vernon.
0: And I'm fascinated still by the canes uh, walking sticks, which were, were supposedly were, were made from the Trees at uh, Mount Vernon, and they, they sold them at the tomb. Yeah,
1: quite a few. In fact, uh, there's there's some great visuals of uh, African Americans, you know, selling things. Uh, one of the book is it's actually the front cover of a, a musical score uh, about, I think it's Washington's Tomb Ballad. But you see an African American man sitting next to the tomb, and uh, a line of walking sticks uh, leaning against the tomb as well. And I found many references where. Individuals were purchasing walking sticks on site from enslaved people. Uh, there is uh, John Augustine Washington III tries to enter into a a, a joint business venture with a man, a DC businessman named James Crutchett, uh, where he basically sells him a bunch of wood from the estate, and Crutchett then uses that wood to make various you know wood trinkets, mementos, metals, plates, and uh, he tries to sell them in Washington DC. But it, the business actually doesn't do all that well. Uh, there is decided preference. You know, People want something from Mount Vernon right. as opposed to purchasing it somewhere else from a guy who claims that it's from Mount Vernon, which, as it turns out, uh, if you look at his Certificate of Authenticity, he says a portion of the wood uh, mm-hmm. is from the same hill where the tomb was. And he's right. It's just a very small portion. Uh, a lot of the wood actually came from other parts of the estate.
0: Who was George Washington Park Custis? He was a relative, right, or a descendant, but he did talk to the people.
1: Yeah, so he was Martha Washington's grandson. And uh, so George Washington would have been his step-grandfather, and um, him uh, and his sister, Eleanor, they were they were basically raised uh, at a young age by George and Martha because their father had passed away, and, uh, and their mother uh was remarried so they were looking after them and, and Washington was always sort of after George Washington Park Custis about his studies and mm-hmm. he really tried to give him every opportunity he could uh but he just wasn't he, he just wasn't well suited for um schooling college he he was much more interested in poetry writing plays uh and then that shows up the rest of his life because he becomes sort of like this George Washington uh, I don't want to say impersonator. He was more like a publicist. Um, right. and, and he loved to talk about his step-grandfather, his heroic deeds, the legends around him. And, uh, and he is actually one of the voices inside the Washington family that really believes that uh, George Washington's body should be moved uh, well after 1799. In fact, he's still advocating for it in the 1850s. Um, he claims in his recollections that Martha Washington, when she was dying, Insisted that they both be moved to the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that just goes to show you that even within the Washington family, there was disagreement about where George Washington should Maybe. be
0: buried. But we're getting closer to the Civil War here, and I gather that Southerners didn't want to move his body to the the Union Capitol.
1: Right. So, um, and this this becomes a sticking point even as early as uh, eighteen sixteen, because the state of Virginia. Uh, wants to move Washington from Mount Vernon to Richmond uh, and entomb him under a monument there and it doesn't end up happening but it happens again in 1830, 1832 uh, these debates in Congress about who really possesses the right to Washington's body and as you can imagine, uh, you know, Virginians and Southerners band together and and this becomes they see this as it's an overextension of federal authority, Mm -hmm. it's an infringement upon state sovereignty uh, but the language they use is really interesting. They talk about Washington being buried in his native soil. Um, that you know, Washington shed blood with their fathers in the Revolution, and to remove him would be an insult to them. Mm. And, uh, and but then the counter argument is that, well, doesn't Delaware have as much right to claim Washington as Virginia, or doesn't New York have as much right to claim Washington? So, like, they're arguing about the physical possession of the body. And uh, and that's very unusual, I think, especially when we consider the American uh, the American example.
0: Yep, his body stays there. the The tomb has changed, though, right? I mean, they built a newer tomb at some point.
1: Yeah, the family built a new tomb in eighteen thirty thirty one, um, and then there's actually two different alterations that are added to it. It's enclosed in brick in eighteen thirty five, and then uh, when a marble sarcophagus is donated to the Washington family for Washington's remains, that's when they add that uh, brick Victorian Gothic archway Mm -hmm. uh, that everybody's probably so familiar with today when they visit Mount Vernon, sort of like the enclosure outside the vault uh, that's added in 1837. Time
0: is uh, getting away from us here. Who are the Mount Vernon Ladies Association members who really made Mount Vernon what it is today? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and, and they're actually, you know, they're the only group that is really able to sort of navigate the politics, the, the sectionalism of it, uh, but also, you know, they're able to do it during, essentially, a lead-up to a civil war, which is pretty remarkable, uh, but they're using uh, the same language, um, and, and that's part of the reason why the book has that title, The Property of the Nation. Uh, the ladies say that, you know, they want to make Washington's home the property of the nation. And I think as the country was veering towards something truly ugly and horrific, um, you know, people were nostalgic. Uh, they, they wanted to believe that, you know, we could still be a nation and that Washington would be part of that. And, uh, and it proved successful. I mean, they were able to raise uh, the necessary funds. It was about $200,000 uh, to purchase the home, the tomb, uh, some of the property. Uh, and they took the property. Uh, they... Had a ceremony on Washington's birthday, 1860, and then uh, the family moved out in June. So, um, you know, right on the eve of the Civil War, they're able to claim the property mm-hmm. for the nation. Um, and it's because they were able to navigate these things, and they had political connections, and uh, but also at the same time they weren't in politics, mm-hmm. uh, so people didn't see them as a threat.
0: Now, today, I mean, you go to Mount Vernon; it's a real professional, like tourist-oriented. Uh a website by gather scholars such as yourself work there what is Mount Vernon like today
1: well in in some ways it does resemble uh, that era, but a lot has changed um you know I think especially in the last twenty years or so um you know they've added that the the museum, the exhibit space the theater uh they now have the Washington library uh which I encourage everyone mm-hmm. to to go see you do You do need to make an appointment uh, so I'll point that out. Uh, You can't just walk into it, but um, that's where the the collections are, Uh, Washington's rare books that they've acquired, and they've recently just acquired a new collection of uh, revolutionary era and 18th century era maps, uh, which I would encourage everyone to to see.
0: Hmm. Is Mount Vernon still important?
1: I believe so. I think they're really the ones that, that set this country on a path towards historic preservation, and, uh, and yes, they were maybe using some, of course, we would see this outdated methods compared to today. Uh, but this idea that, you know, you could have uh, a group of private individuals working with citizens to preserve and conserve something uh, was a pretty radical idea because really Americans hadn't really done much of that before the 1850s. And now you look today, and not only do we have private organizations, but we have government entities, uh, we have the National Park Service, uh, National Trust for Historic Preservation. I mean, all these things have grown out of that movement. And I think, especially today, you know, when we look at the state of our politics, where the United States is on the world stage, uh, you can't help but think, I mean, because we do this with every president, we we go back to Washington and we measure Mm – people, based on his example. And, uh, and I think Washington will always be important for that.
0: Hmm. One thing, and again, we're almost out of time, it, in the 1800s, people saw it as a pilgrimage. Maybe people don't see it that way anymore, but it's still a fun or interesting or important place to go.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, that might have been more than how 19th century Americans interpreted history, is that they almost saw it more as like a pseudo-sacred thing um, and even the idea of like relics I mean because you know museums for quite a while in the 19th century were still displaying things like relics uh, but as history became more of a, a professionalized trade uh, you know oftentimes we've fallen back on well what are the documents what is the provenance you know where does this come from and uh, you know we require a lot more evidence to prove things. I think, now. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably dampened that that idea of just believing, uh, and maybe that's part of the reason why we don't use mm-hmm. as much religious language. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think most people that go to Mount Vernon today, they go to see the house, um, whereas in the 19th century, they went to
0: see the tomb. Matthew Costello is author of The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.